Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Today on the Beeson Podcast, we have the opportunity to listen to a lecture by one of the great voices of the contemporary American pulpit, Dr. Haddon Robinson. Now, I suppose every person listening to this podcast today is either a preacher or someone who regularly listens to preachers. So how the preacher carries out the craft of the sermon really ought to be rather important to us. And that's what Haddon Robinson is talking about in this lecture. It was a part of the William E. Conger, Jr. Lectures on Biblical Preaching, given here at Beeson Divinity School in the year 2000. The title of this particular lecture is preaching as listeners like to hear it. Now, listen carefully to what Dr. Robinson is going to say to us. He's not talking about dumbing down your preaching or kind of responding in a knee-jerk way to uh, how what people want to be told. He's talking about how to craft a sermon in such a way as you grab the attention of the listeners and show them their need for Christ and the gospel through the scriptures. It's a fascinating talk. Let's listen to Dr. Haddon Robinson from the year 2000, the William E. Conger, Jr. Lectures on Biblical Preaching, right here at Beeson. Somebody has said that uh, preaching is the fine art of talking in somebody else's sleep. Insofar as that is true, it is a tragic indictment of preaching. I cannot imagine that uh, there is anybody who ever went into ministry saying, one of the things I would like to have characterized my preaching is that I bore people. Most of us are able to do it on our own. We don't have to have a course in it. But uh, we know if we bore people, we not only uh, sin against them, but we sin against truth. It'd be a shame to take the most wonderful person in the universe and speak about him in such a way that it creates a wide yawn. It'd be terrible to take the truth of God and with it put people to sleep. So the question is, uh, is there any way we can make our sermons more interesting? Is there any way we can speak so that uh, people will listen? Well, what I'd like to do this morning is to give you a, a psychological outline. Most of the time when we talk about outlines, we think about a logical outline. We talk about Roman numerals and A's and then ones and twos. It's a way of putting our content together. And you need a logical outline. In order to be clear, you need to see how the ideas within your sermon relate to one another and how they all relate to the major idea. A a good logical outline is like the frame of the house. The house is more than the frame, but not less than the frame. So without for a moment trying to substitute that kind of outline for what I want to talk to you about, I would like to come at preaching in another way. Instead of looking at it in terms of the content, I'd like to look at it in terms of the lady in the sixth row, three seats in from the end, and ask how does she listen to a sermon? If I can relate what I have to say to the way that person listens, then I have a better chance of being interesting and maybe less chance of being boring. Before I give you this uh, 
psychological outline. Let me just give you a bit of theory. One of the things we're trying to do when we speak is to get and hold people's attention. We don't get their attention, then the game is over before we start. But getting and holding attention is a fairly difficult task. Attention is very fleeting. When you're driving down the highway, uh, the focus of your attention can change as much as uh, 200 times a minute. And even when you're sitting in an auditorium listening to somebody speak, uh, attention is hard to hold. One reason is that, uh, as scintillating as I may be, you can uh, think five times faster than I can speak. So obviously there's a lot of dead space. And I'll say something, and then, you know, in the dead space, your mind goes off and sort of traces it, or whether I say it or not, your mind goes off and thinks about what you're going to have for lunch. Or you go back home, and, you know, then you come back, and I'm still talking, and you go off again. Some of you got to come back, and everybody's going to be gone, and you <laughs> realize you missed it all. But, you know, that's just what happens, so that if I try to work to get and hold attention, and that's where I put my focus, it just isn't going to work because there's no way that you can do that. What I do want to do is to try to take a voluntary attention and turn it into involuntary attention. When you begin, people listen because, well, what they have to listen. The rule of the game is at least when the speaker gets up, you give them the first minute or so. But what you're trying to do is to take a voluntary attention and turn it into involuntary attention. People begin listening because they have to listen, but uh, before long, if you work it correctly, they listen because they want to listen. But to do that, you just can't focus on getting and holding their attention. You have to go to a deeper level. If attention is at the surface, then the next level down is uh, working to get people's interest. Because we tend to give our attention to what we are interested in. Last uh, February, or February a year ago, uh, Bonnie and I uh, took a vacation. We took a, a cruise on the Mediterranean. We started up in Istanbul and then hit some ports in Turkey and then went over to Israel. And the first stop was up in Haifa, which is in the northern part of uh, Israel. And we got there on Sabbath on a Saturday and everything was shut. And I went for a walk, and a passenger in the uh, boat walked with me. And he told me the next day when we got down to Ashdod that he was going to rent a car and go up to Jerusalem. He'd never been there before. And so I said to him, well, when you get to Jerusalem, if you go to the Mount of Olives, which is over to the east, and you look back on the city, you'll see the city with its walls. But, you know, that's really, all of that came from the Crusaders' time. But over to your left, you'll see a, an area with houses, but that's where uh, David raped. And he said to me, I couldn't give a rip about old dead kings. Well, <laughs> that surprised me. That evening, they were having tours for the next day. Uh, they had the non-religious tour of Jerusalem and Bethlehem, and they had the religious tour of Jerusalem and Bethlehem. I guess I could understand people taking a non-religious tour of Jerusalem. It would be like a non-religious tour of Indianapolis. But why in the world anybody would take a 
a non-religious tour of Bethlehem. I mean, that's like a non-religious tour of uh, hot coffee, Mississippi. I mean, it's just a little town. It has no significance apart from the fact that uh, Jesus was born there as the hometown of David. But you think about that. When the people who took the non-religious tour, and interestingly enough, that was the larger of the two tours, <laughs> they got back home, they had pictures of government buildings and the Holocaust Museum and maybe some archaeological digs. But it would have been a very set, different set of slides than the ones that uh, Bonnie and I would have taken had we taken pictures. Why? Because we would give our attention to different things because we are interested in different things. So that uh, what you're interested in determines your attention. Uh, interest tends to be more long-lasting. Then there's a deeper level. You have attention, and then you have interest, and then a deeper level is you have need. And we are most interested in the things that we feel we need the most. So that if I can link what I am saying to what people have as a felt need, I've got a better chance for them to give their interest to it and thus get and hold their attention. You can see how that works. If you get a chance to come to Boston, you might want to visit uh, our art museums, one of the better ones on the East Coast. And, and let's assume you really are a, an art lover. And so you look at the Rembrandts or the Picassos or the Monets. And, but then suddenly as you're <laughs> you know, looking at all this art, what you're interested in, you discover you need to find a restroom. Now, uh, <laughs> The only pictures you're interested in are the little silhouettes of a man or a woman. Uh, you'll trade them in for a Rembrandt any day. Why? <laughs> because what you need is what you're most interested in, and what you're most interested in is what you give your attention to. So if it's possible to link what I say to people's felt needs, then there's a better chance to get their interest and as a result to get and hold their attention. That's the theory that lies behind it. There's a great deal of empirical support. So on the basis of that, I'd like to give you a psychological outline. It's an outline that is uh, relating the content of your sermon to the way people listen. So let's uh, imagine it's a Sunday morning. Service starts at uh, quarter of 11. Uh, <laughs> during the service, you've had, you know, either if you're in an older type service, you've sung one of the two or three of the 27 hymns that people sing. If you're in a more modern service, as one of my friends says, you have a 7-Eleven kind of service. You sing the same seven choruses 11 times. But whatever you do, you have the, <laughs> have the music. And then, uh, then you have some, uh, some special music, and then you have the offering, and maybe the choir sings, but someplace around 20 after, you get up. Now, if you were to survey that uh, audience, you know, to get their reaction, it would be a unanimous ho-hum. By this time, they're a little bit bored, and they have a sneaking suspicion you're going to make matters worse. And the question is, how do you overcome that ho-hum? And the answer is that you begin by making an interesting statement. 
if you can imagine um, two islands, you as the preacher or the teacher are on one island and the audience is on another island. Your island is inhabited by the Jebusites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, uh, the Gnostic heresy. Their island is uh, inhabited by uh, people who are interested in the crabgrass growing in their uh, lawns or maybe a kid that looks like maybe on drugs or question of whether or not they're going to be able to keep their job and the downsizing or perhaps uh, perhaps a tension within their marriage. I mean, they come in their island with a whole different series of interests than you might have. And so what do you have to do to get these folks over here at least interested in what you have to say? And if you're going to do something, you need to build the fire. The fire will get the attention of folks to what you are going to talk about. So in the first uh, few words of your sermon, first, uh, or, your, or your lesson, the first uh, 25, 50 words, uh, you use those words to get people's attention. Uh, they're like the beginning of a book. Those words are the beginning of a new experience. And I'm convinced that in our day, people will make up their minds fast as to whether your message is going to be boring or interesting, whether it's going to be relevant or irrelevant, whether it's going to go any place or just sort of flop around for 35 or 40 minutes. Uh, they make up their minds quickly. Therefore, at least at the beginning, I'd like to get off to a good start. So you begin with an interesting statement. All kinds of interesting statements. I said to the congregation, I know if you're a Christian that uh, you love God. I want to raise another question this morning. And that is, do you like him? Or you might begin by saying... Uh, According to USA Today, um, one in five men will be unfaithful to their wives sometimes during the marriage. With women, it's about one in seven. And I suspect some of you have contributed to that statistic. Don't know where you're going to go with that. <laughs> got folks listening. Um, there's all kinds of interesting statements you can make. Some are startling, but others are just interesting. The wording of that uh, opening uh, two, three sentences is crucial. You overcome the whole hum uh, by building a fire, by having the interesting statement. If you get their interest, as you begin to speak, the audience has a second question. The second question is, uh, why bring this up? And uh, what you're trying to do is uh, to build a bridge from where they are to where you are. And you do that by surfacing a need. You want to tell them early on why they need the message. This in some ways is a, a different gambit than you would have in traditional homiletics. Often if you say to a person, where is the application of the sermon? The answer is it's at the end. But if people have to wait for 30 to 35 minutes to find out what this has to do with them, 
they're going to be gone before you get there. Up front, they want to know uh, why bring this up. In uh, communication theory, there's a, a law that's called Cohen's Law. Uh, cleverly named because it was named after Arthur Cohen, the man who invented it. But out of his research, what he has said is this that information that is given in response to a perceived need makes a deeper impact and lasts longer than information that's given and then applied. Information given in response to a perceived need makes a deeper impact, lasts longer than information that's given and then applied. All that says is that people are asking, why bring that up? And if there's any earthly reason that this is going to be uh, applicable to people's lives, in the introduction, be sure to tell them you're trying to surface a need. You can imagine if you began a sermon and you said, uh, this morning I would like to give you three principles from the Word of God, which if you follow these principles, all of them in the book of, he uh, book of uh, Proverbs, you can be absolutely sure your children will turn out right. You don't have to do any more than that. Uh, of course, the problem would be to deliver on the, on the promise. You know, you hear a lot of introductions of like shooting off a cannon out rolls a pea. Uh, you can't, you know, promise what you don't deliver. But you can imagine, if you could say that, uh, virtually every parent in your congregation would take out a pen to see what the three principles were. Why? Because you have surfaced a need, and you're going to relate what you have to say to that need. It just makes sense that um, what I want to do in the introduction of a sermon, not only get people's attention, not only light the fire, but I want to build a bridge between my world and their world. I want to show them that if they will come over, spend 25, 30 minutes with me, that I'm going to surface a need in their lives and meet it. So uh, the first thing you're doing as you get up is uh, overcoming the whole hum by starting with an interesting statement. The second thing you're doing is answering the question, well, why bring this up? And what I'm doing in answering that is surfacing a need. In other words, I'm building a bridge between my world, the world of the Bible, and the world where these people live. I know one of the objections to that is that that's what happens in uh, modern megachurches. They're all uh, felt need oriented. That's not the problem with the megachurch uh, or other churches. The difficulty is how you go about answering that need. If you answer it out of uh, modern psychology, then uh, you've given up what uh, you have in your hand in the Word of God. And a lot of people can do psychology better than you can. Uh, but if you answer that felt need by going to the scriptures, then uh, you will have a better chance of people listening and responding. Sometimes I have to begin with a felt need to get down to a deeper need. Uh, sometimes it's a lot like a, a person coming to a physician and saying, you know, I've got, uh, I've got my skin itches, I've got these... Uh, uh, 
red splotches. I'd like you to help me with that. Physician uh, looks at that, but he or she may say, uh, no, the problem that you've got is a disease of the bloodstream. We can't solve it. It's sad. It's sad. But no intelligent physician is going to say, oh, hey, you know, you, I'm not going to even talk about your blotches on your skin. I mean, that's the presenting problem. Many times people come and they have felt needs, but they don't know where those needs are. They don't know where they come from. Sometimes I imagine myself like um, somebody in the kitchen of a home. Man gets up at about uh, 12.30, he's hungry. He goes down to the refrigerator and, you know, all kinds of food's there. But he doesn't know what he's hungry for. Knows he wants something to eat, but you know, well, he's gonna eat. And it's my task as a preacher to name his hunger for him. Uh, he's hungry, and he may think he's hungry for pickles and ice cream. He's pregnant. But uh, <laughs> I need to say to him, no, you need something more than that. But nonetheless, uh, if I can establish a need in my introduction, I can build a bridge between that person's world and mine. The third thing that people ask when uh, you've gotten their attention and you've surfaced a need is what's your big idea? How are you going to respond to this need? And this is to simply say, uh, that every sermon that is going to really impact people has to be the embodiment of a single generative idea. Uh, a sermon has a lot of ideas. Roman numeral one is an idea, one under, or a under one is an idea, one under a is an idea. It's made of a lot of ideas. But Roman numeral one, Roman numeral two, Roman numeral three, if you want to think about it in terms of outline, they're related to the main idea of your sermon. And that's what I'm trying to get across to people. Very few people are uh, moved along to God by getting an outline in the book of the Galatians. Very few people are moved along to God by getting the outline of your sermon. <laughs> I mean, you know, they may sit there and take notes, uh, never look at them again. But uh, people don't remember outlines, don't remember po uh, points. I, I don't want to threaten your marriage, but if you're a preacher, <laughs> try asking your wife the following Friday, <laughs> ask her what the outline of your sermon was last week. <laughs> Take another step, ask if she can remember what the sermon was about last Sunday. Uh, it's astonishing how quickly we forget. So if I expect people to remember an outline, all the points under the outline, and how it relates to the Bible, if I really think that's going to work, it doesn't work. People simply can't remember it. Some of you are students here at the seminary. <laughs> Go to a course the night before you cram. I mean, you know, you've got all that information in your mind. You walk in the class and you hope they'll get the questions that'll plug into what you know. But I'll tell you, I would hate to take an exam in a church history course 
in something I may have gotten an A on when I was at seminary today. I mean, I've forgotten most of it. In fact, education is what you've got left after you've forgotten all the facts. And so what you want to do is to drive home to people a basic principle, a, a basic idea. So when the scaffolding is gone, they can remember the idea. Uh, people move on the basis of ideas. In the world out there, they are planted in the basement of the mind by advertisers so people don't examine them. But you have to take an idea from the biblical text related to people's lives and drive that principle home in words that are the words of the marketplace. Give them a, an idea from the scriptures that they can keep in mind in the weeks that follow. Good teaching does that. Good preaching does that. A sermon is the embodiment of a single generative idea. And people need to know what that idea is. But don't play point, point, who's got the point. On a Sunday morning, you ought to be able to answer two basic questions. What in the world am I talking about? And what am I saying about what I'm talking about? The question, what am I talking about? It can't be a single word. It has to be, a, you can phrase it in terms of a question. And then what am I saying about that? Put those two together. That's the idea of your sermon. If it's a mist in the pulpit, it's a fog in the pew. If you can't answer those two questions, you can be sure that that person in the eighth row, four seats in from the end, won't be able to answer it. And you've got to say it a number of different times. So the question people have is, all right, what's your big idea? And all of the sermon is designed to get that across to people based on the scriptures related to their lives. Good communication is the embodiment of a single generative idea. All right, so you got the idea. And you're going to develop it or the sub-ideas in the sermon. Then what do you do? But the first thing you're doing is overcoming the ho-hum with an interesting statement. And then you're overcoming why bring that up by surfacing a need. You've built a fire, you've built a bridge. Now when you bring them over, what you're doing with the idea is sort of giving them your treasure. You can imagine it's like a, like a trunk that's got treasure in it. And you open it. And so the next thing you have to do is that people's response as you're developing a sermon is, for instance, and what you want to do is give them specifics, get down to cases. The poor speaker is the person who is always saying, in other words. I mean, they gave you a bunch of words, and they didn't work, so they're going to go back and give you more words to clear up the words that didn't come across. Now, what people have is an incessant demand. Is for example, for instance, they want you to get down to specifics, to ground what you're saying in the stuff of life. Now, whenever you develop an idea, I mean, any idea, a major idea in the sermon or sub-ideas in the sermon, there's only one of three things you can do to develop an idea. You can either explain it, you can prove it, you can apply it. There's nothing else you can do with an idea. 
<laughs> I know you're sitting there thinking, oh, yeah, it got to be something else. But that's basically how an idea develops. They take an idea as profound as, I think we're going to have bad weather tomorrow. Well, the first question you have is, what do you mean by bad weather? I say, well, I understand you're going to have two foot of snow here in Birmingham. Second question you would ask is, uh, is that true? Do I really believe it? You know, prove it. Well, I was watching television and uh, people on the Weather Channel said that there's a freak storm coming. We're going to have a lot of snow. If you bought that, <laughs> and nobody in Birmingham would, but if you bought it, then you'd say, well, all right, so what? What difference does it make? And I said, well, if we do get two feet of snow tomorrow, you can be sure all classes will be canceled. The whole city will come to a, saw, uh, to a halt. By the way, you don't ask the third question, so what, unless you're convinced of the second question, that you really believe this. And then you don't ask the second question unless you understand what I'm saying. That is, if you don't buy into the fact that it's going to have two foot of snow tomorrow, you don't ask, so what? The conversation is over. Bad preaching focuses on the third functional question, namely, so what? What difference does it make? Without answering the first two. And so then you get, you ought, you must, you should. It's like a cut flower. You don't show people the stem, the flowers. They have this cut flower out here you're supposed to look at. But uh, whenever you develop an idea, you either can explain it, you can prove it, you can apply it. That's all you can do. But you can explain and you can prove and you can apply by using a for instance, by using an illustration, by having people who are looking at your treasure get down to cases, get down to specifics. For example, illustrations prove. If, or excuse me, uh, illustrations explain. If I say to you, um, whenever you're making a decision, you have to distinguish between a problem and a fact of life. It's a fact of life that you're five foot four. It's a problem that you weigh 260 pounds. You can't do anything about a fact of life. You may be able to do something about a problem. Okay, what I have done is given you an abstraction. You have to distinguish between problems and facts of life. And by following up with a specific instance, a little illustration, I've helped you understand what I was trying to say. So, uh, one of the things you can do with an illustration is uh, to explain. C.S. Lewis was once, uh, in one of his books, is talking about theology. And uh, he was explaining why we had to know theology. And he said one day, uh, one, one time during the war, he was speaking to a group of people in the Royal Air Force. In the course of his discussion of some Christian doctrine, an old grizzled uh, RAF sergeant stood up and he said, I got no use for all that talk, all that uh, palaver about God. 
Now, mind you, I believe in God. I felt them, experienced them out there alone at the night. And I don't need to talk about theology. And Lewis said there's a way in which you have to agree with that man. That is, uh, that his experience of God was certainly uh, more interesting and exciting than to talk about God. In the same way that a person uh, who is uh, walking by the seaside feels the spray of the ocean in his face and smells the salt in the air, goes to a room and looks at a, a map of the ocean. The map is not nearly as impressive as the ocean. But then Lewis said, but of course, if you want to get any place across that ocean, the map is absolutely essential. And theology is like that map. Well, <laughs> in that illustration, he uh, explained and even moved to prove. Oh, you can prove things with an illustration, usually an analogy. Uh, prove in the sense of not logical proof, but proof in the sense of a person says, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I, I get that. Uh, you know, assent to something. And Dorothy Sayers, the mystery writer, was once talking about the moral law of God. And she said a lot of people hear about the moral law of God. And they say, look, uh, God's all-powerful. He can change the laws. They seem about as arbitrary as the standards people erect for people are getting into the country club. People who are on the board of the country club can make the rules and they can change the rules. And people think that about the, the law of God. But then Dorothy Sayers says, um, when you think about it, there are two kinds of laws. There's the law of the stop sign and the law of the fire. Law of the stop sign says that there's traffic going through a community and uh, the city council meets and puts up a stop sign. If you run the stop sign, it'll cost you $75. The traffic continues and some people run the sign and so... They can come and they can raise the ante. They can make it $150. Or it may be that they build a highway around the city, the traffic pattern changes. City council can get together and take the stop sign down. It's in their control. And that's the law of the stop sign. But she said there's also the law of the fire. The law of the fire says that if you put your hand into fire, you get burned. So she said, imagine that all of the nations of the world, they would get legislators from all the nations of the world, they would come together in one huge conclave, and they would vote unanimously that from here on out, fire would not burn. <laughs> Dorothy Sayers says the first delegate who left the assembly and put his hand into fire we discover there's a great difference between the law of the fire and the law of the stop sign. Bound up in the nature of fire itself is the penalty for abusing it. So there is a way in which you never break God's laws, you just break yourself on them. And God can no more change the law of the fire than the moral law without changing the very essence of fire itself. And the moral law, she says, 
is like the law of the fire. I read that 30 years ago. Whenever I read a discussion about the moral law of God, I find my mind drawn to stop signs and fires. The illustration nailed it into my mind and in a way proved it. Oh, yeah. And there have been times on talk shows where I've been invited to speak, where I, I've laid that out. And, you know, and it changes the debate. People will call in and say, wait a minute now, is this the law of the fire or the law of the stop sign? Uh, at least they're discussing it on my terms. And then when you apply a truth, what you're doing is taking the truth and showing people how this applies to life. We do that a great deal. So that uh, whatever you're doing with an idea, what you're really asking is, uh, for instance, specifics. I need to get it down to light. Because people think with pictures in their heads. And what I want to do is to create pictures of the truth I'm getting across. Folks are much more likely to listen when they get down to cases. There's a final thing you can do. If you begin by overcoming the whole hum with an interesting statement, or the why bring this up by surfacing a need, or what's your big idea, stating to them what your principle is. And then, if, for instance, you get down to cases, giving them an illustration. After they are over here, seeing what you have in your treasure, they got to go back over the bridge to live tomorrow. On my desk in the office at uh, Gordon Conwell, I have a little poem. It says, as Tommy Snooks and Betty Brooks were leaving church on Sunday, said Tommy Snooks to Betty Brooks, tomorrow will be Monday. That has got to be the ultimate low of social conversations. <laughs> but for somebody who is a servant of Christ, preaching in order to try to change lives, and that's the ultimate high. Because Sunday morning's truth has to uh, be used in Monday morning's world. It has to be dressed up in a business suit, or have an apron around it, or wear overalls. It has to work in the world in which people live. Now, I'm well aware of the fact that not all that I preach can be used on Monday or Tuesday. I'm well aware of the fact that uh, there is truth that you preach and you try to embed in people's minds that they won't be using for quite a while. But if you do that, if you're faced with that, then one of the things you can do is uh, to visualize for people how this might be used. Suppose you were preaching from what, Psalm 48, the uh, Lord is our refuge and strength, the available help in time of trouble. 46. And then you have the refrain, the Lord of hosts is with us. God of even Jacob is our strength. It's repeated after two of the stanzas. But suppose you want to drive that home. You've explained the psalm. 
you, you might say, I don't know when you would uh, see this truth in operation. But I can imagine some night you're awakened from sleep by the jangle of the telephone. And you, you reach over and grope for the receiver, put it to your ear. Suddenly there's a message that someone close and dear to you, someone on whom you have depended for emotional security, is suddenly taken away. You find yourself uh, jolted awake. You try to get some details. Then you put that receiver back in the cradle again. And you know that life will never be the same. Whatever happens at two in the morning or the other time you get a call like that, you'll find yourself uh, afraid, confused, wondering what the future is going to be like and whether you can face it. But at that moment, you may remember this word from God. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of even Jacob is our strength. But the Lord is your refuge and strength and available help in the time of trouble. That will not dry your tears. That will not take away your confusion. But it can give you strength to live tomorrow in the light of the tragedy that hit you today. They don't necessarily use it in Monday morning's world, but if I can create a situation that is uh, possible, even probable, and imagine how they might use this truth in that situation, there's a much better chance than in the days or weeks to come when they're going through difficult periods of life that with that illustration and this truth buried in that illustration, they'll remember again a central truth of the Word of God. So the final th thing people ask is, well, well, so what? What difference does this make? And I need to give them something to take with them as they go back into Monday's wor morning's world. Something that they can use tomorrow as a result of what they've heard today. Many times, the truth that we preach is very applicable to Monday morning's world. People want to know how. They want to see it in operation. And so if I'm going to preach to their needs, I want to tell them not only the truth, but I want to show them how that truth can make a difference if they put it into practice. And so that's the motivated sequence. It begins by... Uh, the whole hunt. You overcome it with an interesting statement. The second question is, well, why bring that up? And I overcome it by trying to surface a need for the message. Third thing, people say, well, okay, what's your big idea? And I want to be sure to state the principle in terms that they can understand. That dominates my sermon. As I develop the sermon, they're going to be asking, well, for instance, for example, 
And so I'm going to take the abstracts that I am preaching and ground them into life. I'm going to give them specifics. At the end of the sermon, we say, well, okay, so what? What difference does this make? I want to give them something they can use tomorrow as a result of what they've heard today. You take that outline, that motivational, psychological outline, and use it along with the logical outline. Put the two together, and you'll have a sermon that's got a better chance of getting and holding people's attention. Even more important, you'll have a sermon that's got a better chance of being in the life of the people that you preach to. And after all, changing lives from the Word of God is what preaching is all about. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.